You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. With my co-host, George Morgan, we're speaking to changemakers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect planetary boundaries. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. Sustainable architecture exactly does not have any style or look to it at all because it's completely driven from the local context. So that means the brief, the people, the place, the available materials and what's appropriate to that context. I'm starting to think of sustainable architecture in a way when we talk about holistic sustainable architecture, we're talking sort of as architecture on steroids, like super architecture is what we need. We need it to perform. Today we speak to architect author, educator, and all-around sustainability expert, Sophie Pelsmakers. And then after Sophie's interview, we'll hear from Scott McCauley in Glasgow about why he founded the Anthropocene Architecture School and how architectural education needs to change. Sophie Pelsmakers is Chair in Sustainable Housing Design at Tampere University in Finland and is best known to our audience as the author of the Environmental Design Pocketbook, which has a new edition due out in 2021. In this episode, Sophie shares with us what's new in the revised pocketbook, her perspective from the Nordic region, and the urgent need for top-down architecture curriculum reform. Sheffield professor Fionn Stevenson has called Sophie a live wire academic. I must say that after collaborating with Sophie and Judith Kempion throughout lockdown on our forthcoming book, Energy People Buildings, I share Fionn's view. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to hear more about Sophie's other projects. She is currently developing a digital climate change curriculum for both undergraduate and master's students, as well as a teacher toolkit for design tutors. George is going to start with a few questions about the new pocketbook. Yes, yeah, so the environmental design pocketbook is really wide ranging, covering everything from site layout, considering wind and light, habitats for biodiversity, embodied energy, energy and use, retrofit, and some regulatory and policy frameworks that relate to sustainability. What else is going to be new for the third edition? I'm changing quite a lot, actually, updating the regulations and the guidance. Um, I'm also looking to bring in some of the aspects about what happens next matters. So it's how architects can actually convince clients to now make these changes and some more of the um, relationship between human behavior and people aspects and environmental design issues as well. Because one of the things the handbook does really well is, is be clear about the limitations of certain sustainability features like grey water recycling not really being worth it or burning biomass rarely being appropriate. But there can be a tendency for people to get really into certain things like natural ventilation as background ventilation even though it doesn't really work. 
or natural building approaches that might be great for embodied energy, but aren't necessarily robust about energy and use. So do you think there's a certain attitude that we should be taking to make sure that we're, we're still doing the right thing? Oh, absolutely. You know, also my teaching, I think that there's so many myths still out there that, oh, it's a natural material, therefore it is good, when actually a lot of natural materials are actually very processed. We make so many assumptions still about things that work, and it's not necessarily based on evidence. And I think that's perhaps the biggest shift in attitude that I would like to see, that we base our decisions on knowledge and evidence and that we don't get too wedded to certain principles and think that that's the right thing simply because we think it is, but rather than because it is. Another highly topical and controversial issue relates to the use of timber for sequestering carbon. People who advocate the use of timber often claim their buildings are carbon negative because the wood is locking up carbon. But there's a really interesting AECB article called Wood from the Trees that challenges the idea that timber can save the planet and states that carbon is better stored in living trees. In Finland, there must be lots of discussion about this. What's your view? I mean, my view is based, of course, on the evidence that that I know is out there. And I think that we're at the moment trying to quantify so many of the impacts of the decisions that we make. And I think that's a very good thing. But also we have, uh, we cannot lose sight that a lot of the things we're trying to quantify are actually really quite hard to quantify. And related to timber, living in a Nordic country where uh, wood is clearly a natural and renewable resource, it is very interesting seeing the debate here as well, because you'll see that some people also say not not all wood is always good, that some of the wood is harvested too early, is not necessarily used in the right way. There is a huge fashion at the moment and interest in using cross-laminated timber, for example, uh, so CLT. But actually CLT has all sorts of other problems that it becomes almost a new concrete. You cannot, if you use it always everywhere, structurally, everywhere you don't need it, you actually can never make future adaptations to a building. So we have to think much more holistically about all the decisions that we make. And this is something I very much try to teach to our students as well. It isn't just about one single impact that we need to look at. So when we're looking at material use, for example, it's not just about embodied energy, embodied carbon, but also the impact that it can have on health and well-being. CLT often has glued material that can damage health and well-being. So we need to actually consider all of those things in our specifications. So we, of course, have to massively think about energy use and the carbon emissions associated with that energy use. But we also cannot lose sight of uh, a decent life cycle assessment and all of the other health and well-being impacts of everything we do. It's not we do one or the other. We have to do all of it. I know that you've always really enjoyed being on site, surveying buildings and collecting data, including the use of U-value measuring techniques. Can you elaborate on this? Is this a skill every architect should have today? Yes, I think for being able to measure stuff and having these quick also rules of thumb about the relationship between energy and carbon, being able to calculate sort of quick energy use of a building based on the standard that we build it to and then the carbon footprint I think is actually fundamental so we can have conversations with engineers but also that we can actually very early on get a good view of what are the energy needs that we still need to meet then with renewables can we still reduce that down further through our design and without that we're designing blind effectively 
than going to site. I actually miss it. I haven't done much of it in the last two years or so, especially in the last year because of COVID. And I think it's going into spaces and, you know, taking up floorboards or looking in cavities and walls, you really start to understand how a building works and what the reality is of the construction compared to sort of the theory that we have as architects when we sit at our, our desk and our drawing board and particularly now myself also as an academic. I do think that some of the skills are quite advanced and particularly then the analysis of the data. So there's always a danger that if we are not careful, we're collecting data that doesn't tell us much or doesn't give us the answer to what we want or become so highly specialized to understand what it means that there is huge room for misinterpretation. The way I see it is we need to have a base level of skills of being able to go and inspect buildings and collect some data, also speak with the, uh, the users. But then there's also collaboration with other experts that actually is wonderful to do because we learn that way from them without necessarily having to become experts in everything. So it's very much about those rules of thumb and that kind of sort of some of the number crunching in there. For example, I think we could really benefit from us as architects also doing our own energy modeling, which is usually left over to the engineer and doing that in more detail. But I really think that the only way that we can build sustainable architecture and create it for reality is very early on already collaborate with experts because there's so much continuously changing, so many skills that we need to have, and not one person embodies, can embody those skills. Yeah, so, so you, yeah, you were talking about um, architects modelling energy ourselves. So I've been off on the Passive House Designer course to learn Passive House Planning Package. And so you, you, you've written quite a lot about Passive House. Do you think it's the best way, or is there anything else out there that does the same job? I think at the moment, Passive House is quite unique in that it's a very transparent way of achieving a very clear standard that's also been proven to work through the evidence and the data that's been collected. I am not wedded to it. If I were to build my own house, if I were to do my own projects, I would definitely recommend it and go down that route. But I also appreciate that in some other climates that might not be the way that people want to approach it. But I do think we're looking at exactly those principles of passive house design, actually. The strength is in its certification as well. Being in a Nordic region, what's interesting is that most of the buildings that here are in the criteria for the building regulations is pretty much towards passive house in any case. It's just that they don't necessarily call it that. And that's because, of course, they've been building to very high standards for quite some time. The big problem we have actually in the Nordic region is that very few of the architects or engineers go back to check how the buildings actually perform in reality. So, yes, I think definitely Passive House is a very robust way of creating buildings that then work that are low energy. Your PhD was about retrofitting Victorian floors and your work on retrofit is included looking at the cost of Passive House retrofit. But it's really, it's really hard and it needs a lot of specialist input to ensure that there aren't problems with mould or moisture and it's really expensive to do a deep retrofit. But you sometimes hear from the likes of Letty that we've got to do it because the grid won't be able to cope with us all going electric with zero carbon power. Do you, do you agree with it? Are we just going to have to do it? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no way, and this is not just in the UK, this is throughout the world, unless we tackle the existing uh, heat loss particularly in Northern Hemisphere, of course, there will be heat loss. But unless we tackle that, there is absolutely no way that we can actually meet the energy needs that are needed at the national or regional level through uh, clean energy provision. 
So the idea that we can just leave a lot of these old buildings as they are and the national grid will sort it out by having more wind farms and nuclear or um, solar farms. It's at a huge expense to the public purse, but also the time scale that we need to do this in is a huge issue. And in any case, it's never a good idea to waste energy, even if it is clean energy. So I absolutely agree. We do need to upgrade all of the existing housing stock. And particularly the UK has a challenge that it's one of the oldest housing stock in Europe because you didn't get bombed as much as other countries. Um, and a lot of your housing stock already exists from um, you know before the wars. Um, so all of those, and they're ultimately uninsulated building is crazy if you think about it, that you just end up with millions, we're talking more than 5 million uh, Victorian terraced homes that literally have not a single piece of insulation on their walls. Just have a little bit in the ceiling, in the loft perhaps, but nothing else. And it's actually crazy if you think about this. If you look at the climatic map of where the UK is located compared to the rest of Europe, and yes, there's significant risks associated. Um, the STBA and SPAB are doing actually quite interesting work in that area, of course. But I do think the key is, is that we actually have to integrate monitoring of those buildings as they are being upgraded so that we, we minimize the risks to begin with, but we also then make sure that as risks occur, we're aware of them immediately when they happen and we can then go back and manage them. Okay, so so what would that monitoring entail? Little moisture sensors embedded within walls that are getting insulated? Yeah, for example, so it would entail um, little sensors in cavities, in floor cavities, wall cavities, but also, for example, a little bit less invasive could be just monitoring the ventilation rates. The CO2 perhaps could be a, a proxy for that, but also relative humidity and temperature in homes as well, because that's also a proxy indicator for whether there is actually moisture buildup. I'd like to shift gears and drill a bit deeper into where sustainable design is at in Finland. From the UK vantage point, we tend to think that the Nordic countries are ahead. What is currently the main focus of debate? Well, let me put it this way. It's actually that the U values and the fabric standards are close to passive house, but it's a much colder country. And that's, of course, the worst you can get away with. So what is very hard to tell is what the actual energy use is overall, because there's so little data of the actual performance of buildings. And so that is a little frustrating. And I think they're really behind on that. And I hope that we can sort of make a systemic shift in that quite quickly to collect the actual performance of buildings. There's quite a lot of talk actually, particularly in Finland, because they construct a lot in timber, still housing in timber, of uh, moisture problems. And that's particularly, of course, if something does go wrong with the roofs or water ingress, then of course you have a timber construction, those problems can multiply quite quickly. And the way that in the Nordic region they tend to look at timber is that it's an old new material in the sense that they've been using it for a very long time, so they're very familiar with it. But we're also starting to use it in different ways. So not only CLT construction, but also just a combination that timber used to be used more as a solid mass kind of construction. Now we're adding a lot of composite man-made materials to it for the insulation and so forth. And and that is raising interesting questions of what happens then to the indoor environment and the quality of the air, what happens when there are moisture problems. So there's a lot of those unknowns and there's a lot of discussion around that. 
on the whole in the Nordic region, they don't really talk anymore about air tightness and whether that's needed, it's just done and it has been done for years. They don't really talk anymore about heat loss reduction. They've had to do this for decades because people otherwise freeze to death practically. You know, I live in a 1970s house and it has half a meter of insulation on the roof, you know, so, and it's got quadruple glazing, for example. So all of those things are very accepted of how, how it is best constructed, how to do it end of life and embodied carbon now. There's a big shift happening into that and it's going into legislation in Finland as well. And so what's interesting is that in the Nordic region, sustainability in in construction doesn't really get talked about in the same way as in the UK. So it's very much a given about energy use. But as I said, for me, what's frustrating is, does it really work in reality? And I'll give you a little bit of an example. When you visit apartment blocks, they're incredibly warm. So we design for 21 degrees, but often they're actually 24, 25 degrees. So I actually would love to see the actual energy use. They also, of course, all have a sauna, all buildings. And that's, I think, nationally about 4% of the energy use is electricity driven or it's actually a biomass. They burn wood in the saunas. And that's actually also quite a large component and one of the largest components actually of air pollution as well, if it's wood burning saunas that they use. The other thing that I think is also really crucial is the fact that uh, the Arctic region is much more affected with the temperature changes. So when there's a heat wave here, all of the buildings are designed at a base level to keep the heat in. And because we have such low solar angle, And in summer, we have 18, 20 hours of sunlight beating down on buildings. They overheat, even if it's just 20 degrees outside, immediately the spaces heat up very quickly. There's real need for research into overheating in buildings. And that's where we can really look to the UK, both on uh, feedback in building performance and then also on the work that's being done on climate change adaptation, particularly in summer. And I do think that the UK could learn a lot about actually construction practices and design practices about airtight building, low energy construction, because they've been doing it here for so long and they don't even talk about it anymore. It's a given. Hmm. I wanted to ask you on a slightly different note, what led you down the academic route and what has stayed with you from your years in practice? I took a quite maybe pragmatic view of it, that in practice, the projects that I was able to contribute to and make a difference with regards to sustainability were few because a project takes so long from start to finish when you work on hundreds of housing and so on. And I took the view that if I can plant more seeds through teaching and educate more architects, then each of them are going to work on one project every few years. That makes a difference. What I miss about being in practice is that it's so much easier to stay up to date with the latest thinking. I'd like to step back a moment and ask about your journey from Belgium to Finland via London. What led you to study architecture in the first place? Oh, now we're going way back. Um, I love drawing and I love being creative as a kid. So I went to art school after school uh, in Belgium. But then I didn't feel ready uh, when I was 17 years old to already decide sort of the subject I was going to study. And I was very lucky to get a scholarship to travel to Indonesia for a year exchange with American Field Service, AFS. And I had the most amazing year there and I ended up 
probably because of my arts interest in a host family and my host dad was an architect in practice and an academic and I could see my host dad uh, Professor Tony Atianto take his student drawings back home on the dining room table of these sort of uh, very vernacular kind of student projects they'd been designing and it was sort of natural when I went back to Belgium that I would study architecture But then I had a really hard time when I was in architecture school. I really did not belong at all. It's still very much, or at least at a time in Belgium, it was very much um, an upper middle class uh, kind of environment. Everybody drove a car. I didn't even, I never, I actually still can't drive a car because I never took classes because I didn't have access to a car. And I come from more of a working class background. So I had to work to be able to study. And that was really quite unusual. And that's when I realized if this is what architecture is, then I, I, I don't want to be an architect. If it is all about just um, designing for the well-off and very little consideration for the other and other people, then I just, I knew that it wasn't for me, that I didn't feel I belonged. And, but that then changed in the UK when I then ended up working for a practice that had worked for the NHS and upgrading of existing mental health hospitals and children's wards in uh, West London and so that massively changed in that sense and then I ended up accidentally into sustainability as a part-time student in the UK being told you have to attend an introduction for all the theory classes so history theory sustainability and so on urban design was one of them landscape and the first one was uh, sustainability and for me it was homecoming I stayed the whole day. I never visited any of the others and I never, and since then, I knew that this is what architecture means to me. It was never a conscious kind of decision. So what happened on that day? Who was, who was speaking and where did the light bulb yeah, go? Yeah, so this was uh, Mike Thompson at East London University and it was actually talking about climate change and the impacts that the built environment has on the environment and on people. And for me, that was a homecoming. I never then questioned it from then on. I knew my path in a way, but it was very accidental in many ways. And that's how I ended up also teaching a few years later or a year later on that course. And it was very much, hey, can you help deliver a seminar? We got loads of students. You might be good at it. And I was like, what, me? Okay, I'll have a go. And then I got mentored and I really liked it and I felt I could make a difference. And so I took on more and more and never left. (laughs) So, yeah. In our first episode with Maria Smith of Bureau Happel, we kind of identified key staging posts in her career that led her to become a climate activist. And in your case, it sounds like there was this one day. Are there other moments along the way that you can point to that were watershed moments? When I worked at Levy Bernstein, I really valued the work that they did on social housing and so on. And and that they really try to make a difference to people's lives. So I've really felt right at home there. Maybe if I back up a little bit, there is a danger when you first learn about sustainability, it's all about energy and carbon, and you start really compromising everything for that. And you forget a lot of the time about it. This is actually about people as well and other impacts. This is real. This is not just on paper what we're trying to do. And so that then meant that I started to realize that we need to get much more of the people's perspective and their satisfaction and understanding how do things work for them into the picture. In terms of holistic thinking about sustainability, curriculum reform is a topic I know you have thought a lot about. 
You are developing an online curriculum which already has a website and several publications on this topic. What do you think has to happen to spark the overhaul in teaching that is necessary to address climate emergency? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, it's on my mind a lot, actually. It's a few individuals that are trying to make a change, and we need everybody on board to make that change. I am a big fan, or I've become a big fan, of uh, top-down. I think if this was actually coming in from this now must be taught, and very specifically so, then it will happen in the schools. Without it, it will always become sidelined because of the lack of resources that is happening in all the universities, not just in the UK. So it becomes a topic that can sort of be sidelined and the minimum can be taught because that's good enough. Yeah, and it, it really applies to existing practitioners as well. Like we don't have time to kind of wait until all the people that you've taught are, are kind of working. We need to upskill our, ourselves in practice, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think that there's huge parallels between the upskilling of tutors and also then actually in practice. What is still very encouraging for me is that a lot of the people that are now active in ACAN, some of them are my ex-students from nine, ten years ago. So it does show you the planting of the seeds. It's wonderful to see. And I have nothing to do with the amazing work they do now. But the fact that you sort of taught them then, they were super engaged with it. You really inspired them. Or probably, I hope, I like to think I was an, a, a part of an inspirational point for them. That then they managed to make actually their livelihood out of this and also find them their own homecoming the way I have. And it creates that momentum as well, you know, that didn't exist for all this, all this time that is really happening in the UK now. Oh, that's fantastic. You must feel very proud. I just feel like this is, I wish that I was a student. I was younger. I was part of this momentum. I wish I, I sort of, that this had been happening 10 years ago, you know, rather than the, you're sort of a lonely voice oftentimes. And I think Hattie will also understand this as a AJ sustainability editor. You're sort of breaking ground and having to continuously argue for it. And carefully also, I think, I often found I had to very carefully make statements of, I wanted them to do something on sustainability, even if it was very little rather than nothing, because I felt that it was always so sidelined that I couldn't argue for more. Well, now I can be much more bold because everybody's in agreement. This is what we should be doing, you know? So I just wish that I was part of that movement and that momentum, that I was younger and, and that I, yeah. I can relate that to that. at that time. I can relate yeah, to that. I mean, it's yeah. amazing what's happened in the last 18 months, two years, and we just have to build on that because there is so much more to do. But I also think we need to be very careful. Like, it comes back a bit to some of the earlier discussions there is a danger. I think we just have to be very careful that sustainability isn't just a fad or a fashion and that people realize that, oh, there's money to be made because then actually we have a real risk that, again, we turn around and we create projects that are greenwashed, that are not actually really truly making a difference. That's also going to be a real challenge in teaching and in practice that we have so much more knowledge out there. We cannot waste time. We have to build on each other's knowledge and share it and not sort of reinvent the wheel and start all over again. I see it happening close to stuff that I'm doing and in the UK, in Denmark it's happening and here in Finland as well. So are there sort of top myths that you see recurring? You talked about ill-conceived ideas about sustainability or, or, or greenwash. Are there, are there kind of, yeah, certain things that are recurring? Yeah, there's many things. Um, I think you mentioned a few already earlier on. Um, so the whole vertical green uh, wall thing, where we're sort of just 
putting green, you know, almost wallpapering buildings with green stuff. It just requires so much maintenance and uh, energy to move water around and nutrients around. You know, it's hugely questionable in most climates. Other issues is, uh, for example, you can't open a window in a passive house. Or that, for example, when we talk about good year-round background ventilation, people think that you in the summer are not opening and, and your house or that you cannot actually um, you know, have nice cross-ventilation. Also, then people say, oh, it's a good insulated buildings, they cause overheating. No, it's, it's a well-insulated building with bad solar design, no solar shading that contributes to overheating of spaces. So also this issue that they sort of say, well, we don't really have to worry about passive resilience. We can solve a lot of things still with technology. Once we have clean energy, it doesn't matter how much energy is used in a building. When, of course, as I said earlier, the issue is that if we end up with very energy inefficient buildings, we will never be able to, as a country, provide all of the renewable energy that is needed. We have to reduce it to begin with. So there's still a lot of those issues happening also, like whether if you have mechanical ventilation, it's worse for your health and natural ventilation when actually most of research is showing the opposite because you control the actual you know, ventilation year round and therefore the air quality with natural ventilation, you cannot control it so well. So there's a lot of those myths um, still out there that keep on coming back, actually, that don't seem to disappear. I think George has one last question for you, Sophie. Yeah, so... so- Part of what architecture can do is provide a vision of the future, like with constructivism or modernism or ideas for the futuristic inhabitation of space and things like that. What would a sustainable future architecture look like? Do you think it has a specific look? Oh, I think sustainable architecture exactly does not have any style or look to it at all because it's completely driven from the local context. So that means the brief, the people, the place available materials and what's appropriate to that context but I do think I'm starting to think of sustainable architecture in a way when we talk about holistic sustainable architecture in a way we're talking sort of as architecture on steroids like super architecture is what we need we needed to perform we needed to do a lot of things and I think we don't traditionally think of architecture that it really has to perform and do so many things all at once we often you know often Architects say, well, my project's sustainable because we did community participation. Or the project is sustainable because it's passive house. Or the project is sustainable because we're using only wood. And then they neglect all of the other aspects. So it's a low energy project, but they never actually considered the user's needs or biodiversity. You know, in Finland, uh, because they have so much nature and we, we have a lot of granite rock, they explode the rock they cut all the mature forests down to build low energy housing and then they have to wait 40 years for mature trees to come back so that isn't sustainable development so that's what i'm saying it's sort of a bit on steroids it's got it's super architecture that we need that's how i'm starting to think of it and explain it to my students it's not good enough that you do one thing and say look how sustainable we are when then you neglect health and well-being or the aesthetics of a building or the urban infrastructure and so on and so forth. So it's sort of, it needs to be a super kind of architecture that we need to create. Thank you very much, Sophie. This has been a fantastic discussion. As a compliment to our interview with Sophie, we've invited Scott McCauley, mastermind behind the Anthropocene School of Architecture, onto the podcast. 
Scott recently hosted a remarkable two-hour climate crisis workshop for over 190 students from 47 universities across the UK. Scott, tell me, where did you study architecture? I studied architecture at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And how did you get started with your passion for climate issues? During my time in uni, I was quite disenchanted by not being taught on sustainable design or the pragmatic ways of doing this. So I started to go out and look for places I could do this. So in my after my second year, I went and took a, a course of UK Hemp Group, who then, after taking that course, they said, we've got this project going on in the French Alps. Would you like to go and volunteer? All you've got to do is pay to get there. So immediately... A sustainable design, ecological construction, going to the French Alps in the middle of summer and blazing sunshine, said yes, dove at it. And then I just met all these incredible people, uh, architects, craftswomen, you name it, every, people doing every single point of design, construction and crafts. But they were all working on this one couple's property and a couple themselves were really inspiring. They wanted to have a permaculture farm around the house. And then I came back and got introduced to the Scottish Ecological Design Association. So I all of a sudden had this great community of people to learn from outside of university. So I really wasn't getting that in uni much at all. And then what led you to create the Anthropocene Architecture School? The IPCC released a special report on 1.5 degrees and then nothing. There was a kind of like a lull, nothing changed. And that for me, it was really jarring. And there was all these things about 12 years until irreparable climate change. But then groups like Extinction Rebellion just burst into life. There was the the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office by the Sunrise Movement. And suddenly people were just doing things. So that was really energising and uplifting. And then we've got the Architecture Fringe in Scotland, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's just this incredible open platform. And I looked at the the provocation was in real life. So for me, it was just, and I thought, how can I expand this? And just like a little bit playfully, just sort of play off what their topic was. So I said, just said, in real life, there's a climate crisis. And then laid out a kind of very theatrical uh, five-point manifesto of pointing out what was wrong in architecture schools. I then did a wee bit of research to see how much do students really know about sustainable design in 2019. And then I went to the first meetup for the Architecture Fringe. Everyone else is putting up photographs and other quite really artistic things. I've put up these three big graphs, these circular graphs that have now turned into diagrams. And I went, this is the, the quantified knowledge gap in architectural education, sustainable design. We've got an optimistic 59%. Everyone just kind of stopped. And afterwards, I was like, oh, no, I might have gone too far and saying things are terrible. <laughs> and then suddenly I, all of this support immediately so there was, before I'd even left the room, I'd had lots of people come across and say, what are you going to do with this? Like, what are the ideas? What's happening next? And then I thought, okay, so there's there's excite, there's a bit of interest in it so we can get people a bit engaged. So I then started to think, how can I play off this and drum up a bit more interest with things like social media and what, what already exists? So I started to put together the library. So that was a can I put a review for a book, one a day for as long for a full month of March, just to kind of, this is the lead up to what's going to happen. And then I launched that at the Fringe and got loads of interest. And I got lots of support from like practices and I crowdfunded to hire out the oldest Victorian music hall in the world just to be extra theatrical. And 
all the money that raised that paid for it went straight to the restoration of the building as well. So I did that, I had this big polylogue of people just discussing what's missing from education in the Anthropocene. And we had we instantly had words like we need to uh, de decolonization of the curriculum. We need to be pragmatically teaching. And it wasn't just architects that came along to talk about this. We had engineers. We had a designer who'd done a simulation for COP before to show delegates what a future world could look like. And it just seemed to catch people's imagination straight away. Just using the titling of the Anthropocene Architecture School was very intentional. It was to not use the word climate, but to speak about a changing world and to think of a new school of thought that's more restorative and than just sustainable, but actually repairing the damage that's been done and really looking at the culture in architecture and especially in education, how we teach and who's supported. And then it just sort of from there, it was meant to be a kind of one off protest, one big burst of energy that hope I kind of thought if you give people these things and say this is what needs addressed i've like done the legwork maybe things will happen but that 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 didn't happen so i ended up uh through extinction rebellion i was asked would i like to do an architectural focus event with them at the edinburgh fringe so we did this kind of hackathon focusing on cities and different parts of the infrastructure and then from there i got invited to introduce part of the ris national convention so from there i got to set the tone of a climate emergency very kind of not bluntly, just kind of quite honestly and said like, this is the statistics of where we are and how many of us are qualified in sustainable design. And so what are we going to do? Like, we can't just keep doing the same thing. I went theatrical as, as became par for the course, uh, just on the biggest screen I've ever seen in my life had, there are no awards on a dead planet with the flames, etc. on the background. It was just, I told them you can't eat a sterling prize. So we really just, and then from there, the response I got was, so much energy that I, I was I was terrified I'd never spoke at a conference in my life and I had all these people rushing up afterwards saying like that was brilliant it's good that we're actually talking about this we're not dodging the point and then yeah from there I just started to think okay so people are now asking what do we do next what is the next step how do we teach this what do we teach and I had done I did a little bit of crowdfunding I just as a bit of a test said I will teach your practice climate literacy so if I'm going to raise funds for the school, if you uh, donate to this crowdfunder, I'll come in for an hour and I'll teach you everything I can fit into an hour to catch you up on things. So the very first of those was collective architecture and uh, Chris Stewart and Jude Barber have been amazingly supportive of everything. Just always amazing sounding boards and supports. So I went to the practice, sat for an hour and had a, bit of, a little bit of a silence afterwards and just a kind of, oh... We, lots of people didn't know things were as urgent as it was. They didn't know what things they could do straight away. And this was in no bad way. Lots of people were just very shocked. And I, up till that point, had thought there must be a kind of a willful thing about this somewhere. Like There must be, because all the information is there. Why are people not responding? But then from there, I went and did like the same for Bennett's Associates in Edinburgh. We conference called them to different offices. And then I started to think, right, for students, we need to, we can use their education, their projects as an armature to teach sustainable design. So that led into the kind of crisis. So that was the crisis studio project. So instead of just getting architects, I got everyone. I just did a call out to my kind of network of friends and people I've worked with before and said, I would love to teach students. Would anyone like to donate an hour of their time, maybe two, 
to just like talk through their projects and really like let them ask the questions they might be afraid to ask in uni. And the response from students was amazing. There were just like some of them were coming like out excited about projects they were dreading or not enjoying and they were able to ask people who that was their entire specialty. And that just kind of burst into like a run of four of them. And then, yeah, that's it's just kind of unintentionally flourished by itself. And up until the workshop that I did the other day, as things have just kind of spiraled kind of happily. And what would you say, because I think so many people in architecture school are, are afraid to speak up. And what was it that triggered you into action? I think the trigger for me was really, so it was watching nothing happen. It was seeing the IPCC report came out and like when actions speak louder than words and there is no action and you've I spent years training to be part of like this professional industry and I'm looking around and hoping please someone do something and that really that didn't feel answered and I've always just been a kind of just do it person like but just okay so like what are you going to do next what is the next step right so let me ask you this what are the three most impactful things that could transform architectural education? I think at this point, it would be educating educators at the same time as students, because we really need to acknowledge that this has not been the norm in the curriculum for decades. So just to put the blame on students that they need to learn, and that's it. You can't teach people climate literacy if you haven't yourself taken the time to learn climate literacy. It's it's. So it's really just having the the honesty and being humble and just saying to tutors, like, we will support you in learning this whilst you support students. So number one is educate the educators and share resources because that's what's, that's a huge gap. Then second, in terms of practices, you could do a great deal of good by inviting students just to actually walk students through your project like it's a crit. Show them what you learned, how you refined things, but show them how data matters and that the performance, there is a performance gap in how we design. That's something that's not, it's not touched upon architectural education. So to, if you tell students that, by the way, buildings can perform three times worse easily than you design them, they're shocked. I'm like, that is, that is very normal. So the second one is use your projects to teach students. So actually have practitioners educating in a way which doesn't feel like a lecture theatre or even in the design studio. So treat students as if they are already fully chartered. Just talk to them as if they're your equal, which is which would be incredibly important. And third, I think we really need, we need a united front. So we really need to have kind of the ARB, the RIBA, and everyone else with an interest in the, the skills of architecture Everyone around the table and like who can bring what, who's filled what gap, what do we not need to develop because somebody has already done a really good job of doing. There is no need in us reinventing wheels and developing uh, all these. I've seen like dozens of carbon, like carbon calculators, and we don't need twenty of them. We need like one or two that work slightly differently. We're fine. So let's stop burning time reinventing wheels. Mm. We need to go beyond one discipline. Like architecture is not the silver bullet. Scott, I think we can leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. On our next episode, we'll be speaking to Diana Dina, Head of Sustainability and Regenerative Design at Hayworth Tompkins, 
co-founders of Architects Declare. Diana has what I would call a dream job. A year into her new role, she shares with us her approach to steering the 80-strong practice to up their game in sustainable design. You can find out more on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk, where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Thank you.